Acts 21 verses 1 through 6 says this. After we had torn ourselves away from them, talking about the Ephesian elders there in the city of Miletus, we put out to sea and sailed straight to, to Kos. The next day we went to Rhodes and from there to Patara. We found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, went, uh, went on board and set sail. After sighting Cyprus and, and passing to the south of it, we sailed on to Syria. We landed at Tyre where our ship was to unload the cargo. We sat out the disciples there and stayed with them seven days. Through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go to Jerusalem. When it was time to leave, we left and continued on, on our way. All of them, including wives and children, accompanied us, accompanied us out of the city. And there on the beach, we knelt to pray. After saying goodbye to each other, we went aboard the ship and, then re and they returned home. So it, it wasn't easy for Paul and his companions to leave the Ephesian elders. They had been there for the uh, longest period of time <clears throat> in their ministry um, and, it, it was, and it wasn't easy for the elders to let them go. And he, he, the language there, he says, he literally had to tear himself away from the, from the embraces of his emotional friends. And I'm sure you've had those kind of partings at times in your life where you're having to say goodbye to somebody and the tears are flowing and, and you had to literally tear yourself away from them. It was a very difficult, very emotional parting. But, tall, but Paul begins his journey toward Jerusalem. And if you look at the map that I gave to you, and if you're, if they, if you're listening to this later online, you can download it there. But uh, if you'll see that they left, and they, they, they left out of Miletus, and you can see that there. Just uh, uh, You can find that on the map. And they went down to this small island of Kos, and then they, moved, they sailed from there to the island of Rhodes. And then from the island of Rhodes, they, they went to a city, a, a port on the south part of the province of Asia there, right on the coast uh, that, was, that was called Patara. And it was there that they, they changed ships. Uh, probably they went to a larger ship. This is, these were very short little legs, so it was probably a very a smaller ship that was designed to stay close to the shore. But now they needed something because the, uh, that was going to be larger that could handle sailing on the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, and so they, they find the ship and they book passage and they board that and they're, and they're heading, headed toward the region of Phoenicia and they're going to be landing in the city of Tyre. And uh, Luke records a little bit. I, you know, I just picture it in my mind. It says that, that they sailed south of Cyprus and it literally says that, that Cyprus was on the left of them as they went past it. And you know, surely as he passed that, I mean, memories must have been sparked for Paul must have remembered his first journey with Barnabas and how they went through that island and preached the gospel. And, 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 and I mean, how many miles and memories had passed since that first journey? I mean, these, we're talking about many years now, not to mention the many, many souls that had come to, to, to know Jesus during this time. And, the, and so the ship put in at Tyre after they sailed through the Mediterranean and they're set in at Tyre in Syria. And, and it began unloading its cargo. And as they unloaded the cargo, Paul, it gave Paul, it must have been a very large ship with a lot of cargo because it took them about a week. They had a week while there. And, uh, and, 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 and he went to find the Christians. Now, Paul, we have no record of him ever preaching or being in Tyre. But he knows that there's a church there, and he knows there are Christians there. And we're told that he found them, 
And the, the word there that's used, the Greek word literally means that, that it's, it's a searching out of something that you, that is lost, that you don't know where it is. And so he went out and said, I know there are Christians here, let's go find them. And they found them so that he could spend time with them. And the fact that there's this church is there, it's another indication of how extensively the believers were scattered. You remember when Stephen was stoned and how the persecution broke out and the believers scattered all over the world? This is one of the churches that got planted as a result of that. And, and among the Tyrian uh, Christians, there were there's some who had the gift of prophecy. And, 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 and we see this all along this journey. The, they, they, they foresaw the grave danger that awaited Paul at Jerusalem. And, and, and what we read is we read that the believers urged. It means that they, re- kept, they kept repeatedly telling Paul through the Spirit, it said, to give up his trip to Jerusalem. Now, this is a very interesting passage because we just read last week in, in chapter 20, uh, verse 22, I think it was, it, we just read how the Spirit was compelling Paul to go to Jerusalem. And now it says, through the Spirit, they kept telling Paul, begging Paul not to go to Jerusalem. So what's the deal here? Is the, is the Holy Spirit contradicting himself? Uh, is Paul being disobedient in this situation? Well, no, that's, he was not being disobedient, and the Holy Spirit does not contradict himself. The word through... A better translation would be in consequence of the Spirit. That is, because of what the Spirit said, they kept urging Paul not to go to Jerusalem. So what's happening is, as we see all along in this journey, he would stop and there would be the Holy Spirit would reveal to, to people who had the gift of prophecy in the church that, that if he went to Jerusalem, that imprisonment and suffering was awaiting him there. And so, uh, uh, you know, he, because of that, the believers' love and concern for Paul, uh, that, that made them, their reaction was, Paul, don't go. Now, that part was their opinion. That part was not the voice of the Spirit. That was their reaction saying, I don't want this to happen, Paul. We love you. You're too important to us. Don't go to Jerusalem. In, in other words, because of this just matter-of-fact prophecy, which we'll see it again in a few verses from a prophet named Agabus, it was just a very matter-of-fact, straightforward prophecy about chains and imprisonments. The people voiced their feeling that he should not go. Which, which see, here's the thing. Sometimes it's very hard. We have to make sure, uh, when even when someone has a word from God, we have to make sure that, uh, that, what the, that we know the part that's coming from God and the part that might be their reaction and their, their opinion of it. Uh, and so it's about trying the Spirit and, and knowing what... And we're going to get into that a little bit more in a few minutes. But Paul, he knew that the Spirit was compelling him. And even though other Christians were, were hearing this and saying, don't go, Paul, this is a bad idea. He was absolutely convinced in his spirit that this is where he needed to go. This is where Jesus was calling him. And so he refused to be swayed by the emotions of the moment. You know, we've talked about it uh, even just the past Sunday. We as, you know, we're good Pentecostals. We like, we like the feelings, don't we? We like the emotions. Uh, but, you know, sometimes 
we have to be careful because our emotions will lie to us. Anybody found that to be true? You know, and so uh, Paul, he, he didn't let that get to him and he knew where he needed to go. He knew where he was headed. So he refused to give in. And so Paul with a really with a, a, a complete lack of concern for his own safety. Uh, as all he wanted to do was fulfill this calling of God that he had put on his life. And he resolutely headed for Jerusalem. He was, uh, as we said, as I said, verse 22 of Acts 20, he was irresistibly drawn by the Holy Spirit to go to Jerusalem. And no matter what anybody said, he knew what God wanted him to do, and he was, he was going to do it. That's all that mattered. And, 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 and it was, in fact, because he had been, this had been revealed to him in so many different places, by now, Paul knows. He doesn't know all the details, but he knows what does chains and imprisonment mean. It means you're going to be arrested. I think there's a very good chance that Paul, by now, realized that he was going to go to Rome, but he was going to go in chains. So within a week, this is amazing to me. You know, uh, there are some people that criticized Paul uh, during his day, and they said he's cold, he's hard. Um, but you know what? And you read, you know, some of the way he had to deal with some of the churches and the issues they had. Sometimes it was, he was very straightforward and right to the point and firm, but we also know that he must have been a very, he must have had such great love for the churches that he connected with them very quickly because he had not been in the, the, the city of Tyre. He hadn't met those Christians, but within a week, the whole church, including the wives and children, they came to know him and came to love Paul. You know, and it was as reminiscent of the farewell at Miletus, the believers they didn't want to say goodbye. They all went with him out to the beach and, and the, 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 uh, the boat. They didn't have a dock there. The boat was out a little ways and it was anchored out there. And, and the passengers would get on a smaller boat, a rowboat, and they would make their way out to the ship. But they're standing there on the beach and, and on the beach right out there. Now, now, they already know there's bad things coming. They all knelt and they prayed. I mean, he, he, how he must have been encouraged by that send-off. I mean, what a blessing to have the people of God lifting your name and, and reciting your needs before the throne of heaven. I, I tell you, there's no, there's no greater thing you can do for anybody than to call their name out to the creator of the universe. No greater thing you can do for them. And, and to be prayed for is to receive eternal help, but it's also to, to receive temporal um, encouragement, temporary and earthly encouragement. In fact, you know, this morning, I was getting ready this morning, or not this morning, it was yesterday morning. I was, I was getting ready for the day, and I remember as I was getting ready, uh, the Lord just spoke to me. He said, there are people praying for you right now. You know how encouraging that is? See, that's a powerful thing to, to be prayed for. And let me just tell you this. If no one is praying for you, you probably only have yourself to blame. Say, what are you talking about? Well, I'll put it this way. God is omniscient. Anybody know what omniscient means? Just a big word that means 
all-knowing. He knows everything. However, his children are not. And can I just add to that specifically? The pastor is not. (laughs) I I can't tell you how many times over the years in ministry that somebody will, will have been in the hospital for several days and then they get home and then they, they're upset. They say, well, you know, pastor never came to visit me while, while I was in the hospital. And they never told pastor that they were in the hospital. I guess I'm supposed to just call the, every hospital and say, let me give you a list of names. Are any of these people here? You know, but, uh, I, but, but, you know, if nobody's praying to you, the fact is nobody can read your mind. Nobody knows what you need prayer for. Nobody knows what's going on in your life. You, you, you know, unless you tell them to be prayed for, it's important to be in a setting where people can get to know you and get to know your struggles. And this is one reason why our connect groups that we've just launched is so important because, because it gives you an opportunity to open up and, and be prayed for and be loved on, but also gives you the opportunity to do the same for other people. So it's a really powerful thing. And this is why, you know, this had to be a great encouraging moment for Paul to know I mean, for him, I would think these people are here kneeling with me, praying for me right now. But I would be thinking, I also know that there are churches all over Asia and and Macedonia that are praying for me. How encouraging it must have been. Let's keep reading in verse 7. We continued our voyage from Tyre and landed at, at Ptolemais, where we greeted the brothers and sisters and stayed with them for a day. Leaving the next day, We reached Caesarea and stayed at the house of Philip the Evangelist, one of the seven. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. After we had been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, uh, uh, tied his own hands and feet with it, and said, the Holy Spirit says, and that's a key phrase, he's saying, he's making it very clear, this is what God is saying. In this way, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? Literally, that word is literally literally crushing my heart. I'm ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. When he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said the Lord's will be done. So they sail out of Tyre, and you can see on the map there, they just go a little bit, a very short trip south, and they go into a small port of uh, Ptolemais, and, and uh, it's about halfway between Tyre and Caesarea, and they, they were only there one day. They spent the day with the Christians there, and then they got back on the ship, and they went down to Caesarea. And in Caesarea, they stayed at the home of Philip the Evangelist. We're told he was one of the seven. Now, what that means, if you go back to Acts chapter 6, Um, you remember that there were seven men who were elected as deacons, who were elected as leaders, and uh, among those was Philip, among those, another one was Stephen. And and so he was one of those original seven deacons that was elected and was chosen uh, uh, by the people. And and he's the one, you remember, he had preached in Samaria. The great revival had broken out and then Peter and John uh, came later and they lay hands on people and they received the gift of the Holy Spirit. You remember Simon the sorcerer? He, he said, uh, hey, give me this power. I'll pay you to give me the power to do this. And we, we remember that story. 
We also remember how the Lord told him, I want you to leave this great revival. This would have been, listen, as a preacher, I'm telling you, this would have been a hard thing to do. Because this great revival is going on and he says, all right, I want you to go out. I want you to go out into the desert. And you go out in the desert and you just go. I, you know what? I'm not even going to tell you why you're going. You just go. And so he goes out there and in the middle of the desert, he comes across the Ethiopian eunuch. And he leads him to the Lord. And the, and, he, and the Ethiopian eunuch says, I believe in Jesus. Is there anything that keep me from being baptized? And there was a pool of water there and they stopped. And he said, let's get baptized now. And they baptized him. And the Bible says that as he came out of the water, up out of the water, he was gone. And he was in, in Caesarea. I mean, it's just this incredible story. And so this is the same man. And this is where he's been living in the city of Caesarea. But I want you to notice Philip's faithfulness and Philip's success. You know, all these years he's been serving God. And now he had four daughters who prophesied. Listen, I'm telling you this. Things have not changed that much. Philip was a man of God if he survived four daughters. But no, I'm just kidding. Uh, but he had four daughters. But think about this. This, this man of God uh, walked with the Lord in such a way that his four daughters not only served God, but they were seeking to be used by the Spirit and they were used in the gift of prophecy. Can I tell you, you know, we talk about success a lot of times. I'm telling you this, if you're a parent, there is no greater success for a parent than to have your children actively serving God. There's no greater success than that. And you know what? We, we need to redefine success in our culture because, you know, even in the ministry, I was talking about this uh, yesterday a, a little bit, but in the ministry, we tend to think of success as you know, if you're, if you're a pastor, you know, you go to a larger church because that's success. And, but you know what? Being in ministry is not about climbing a ladder and trying to get to the biggest church. And so you can say, well, I've got this number of people and that sort of thing. Uh, and, and the problem is there's only one way you can define success. Success is defined by purpose. And then it's measured by obedience. Let me explain what I mean. I'll give you a really silly illustration to explain what I mean. Uh, let's just say that, uh, that I, I hired Ernest to come out to the house and dig a ditch. He's like, you ain't hired me for that. <laughs> but let's just, as an illustration. And let's say that he came out to the house to, and I'd hired him to dig this ditch. And he comes out and instead of digging the ditch, he mows the lawn and he trims all the shrubs, and he, he does the dishes, and, uh, and Lisa's back there saying, now you're dreaming. Uh, but, <laughs> but he does all these other things. At the end of the day, he says, all right, I want you to pay me for digging the ditch. And I look out there, and I say, but Ernest, you haven't dug a ditch. You can't say that he was successful, even though he did a lot of really good things. Because his purpose there was not to mow the lawn and trim the shrubs and wash the dishes. His purpose was to dig a ditch. So success can only def be defined by knowing your purpose. Right? You following me? So if you don't know your purpose, you cannot possibly achieve success. And number two, here's the, here's the other thing about that. The only way then 
If I define purpose, uh, excuse me, define success by what my purpose is, then the only way that I can measure my success is how obedient am I being to my purpose? That's the only measurement. So in ministry, for example, as a pastor, my, my success is going to be defined by, 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 by my ability to pastor the people. I was just talking with Chuck yesterday that I don't care what title you have. You know, if you're, if you're lead pastor or you're worship pastor or children's pastor, when you add that word pastor to it, it's about the people. That's what it means. And so that means that it's not just about the task whether, you know, say you're a worship leader, it's not about the task of worship. It's about the people and leading them and helping them worship God. It's about the people that you're on your team. And so as a, if, if, I'm de, if it's defined by purpose as a pastor, then I understand that. And then the way I have to measure my success is not by am I, do I have the largest church in the county. My success has to be defined by how obedient am I being, being to what God has called me to, to be and to do? And see, the problem with trying to use other things, as I said yesterday, you know, some, some guy that's in a, you know, some guy that's being faithful and pastoring a church of 25 people in a small little dying town, but, he, but those people need a pastor, you know, in that church, there's very little potential for growth if the, if the city's dying and the county's dying and the people are moving out. You know, you're not going to see a lot of new people coming in there. But those people that are there need somebody to shepherd their soul, somebody to help them, somebody to help them become all that God wants them to be. And, and you can't measure his success by the number of people in his church. You have to measure his success by is he called to pastor those people? And if he is, is it, how obedient is he being to that call? And so in, in our lives, you have to know what your purpose is. What is your purpose? Well, ultimately, let me just say this. Ultimately, the ultimate purpose for every human being is to worship and glorify God. By, by he, the scripture says that by him all things were created and all things were created by him and for him. For his glory all things are created. So that's your ultimate purpose. Uh, but, but here on this earth, you know, we look at this, he has given us all this great commission, we call it, about going in all the world and making disciples. That's a purpose that he has given to us. So my success is not defined by the amount of money in, my, in the bank. Your success is not defined by, you know, if you have a nice car and nice home. Your success as a follower of Jesus is defined and measured by how obedient are you to the call that he's given you. Another measure of success. This is a little more personal note. Success is ultimately having those closest to you love and respect you the most. See, now we're talking about integrity. Because you, um, here's what, here's, you know, I was in youth ministry a long time. And, uh, and during those years, I, I, I came to believe very strongly that not the only, but one of the major causes of rebellion in, in teenagers is hypocrisy in the home among the parents. 
It's not the only cause. There are many other things that can cause it. But one of the things that I saw over and over again was teenagers who, who saw their parents live one way at home and live another way at church, and then they came to the conclusion that this is not real and I don't need this because it doesn't affect anything outside of church. And so what's happened is those people look at, the, the, those, those teenagers look at their parents and they lose respect for them because they say they are different people in two different places. Now listen, it is a high level of success when your children and your spouse, those that are closest to you, at the end of it all, have the greatest love and respect for you. Because that says a lot about the integrity of your life. We use that word and we tend to think of certain things, but let me, it's really a, um, a word that's often used in uh, physics and in, in construction. You know, if you're talking about the integrity of a bridge, what are you talking about? You're talking about that, that all of the pieces are fitting together in such a way that it can support the weight. And when you're talking about integrity in life, what you're saying is all the pieces of my life are fitting together in such a way that it supports the weight of my testimony, that supports the weight of what I'm saying. What I say I believe, it shows that, that it's true because all the pieces fit together that way. Ultimately, success is finding God's plan for your life and giving yourself fully to it. Well, Paul, let's get back to Paul. While they were in Caesarea, there at Philip's house, the successful man of God, this prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Now, this isn't the first time we've heard of Agabus because 15 years earlier, Agabus had predicted the famine that was going to take place during the reign of, of Claudius. And this is, that's in Acts chapter 11. So this is twice now. And so he, he's known among the people of, of the church in that area. He's, he's known for his gift of, of prophecy. And he arrives at Philip's home, and he just gives this, this graphic display of what lay ahead for Paul. And, and in this, he gives more detail as to what was awaiting him than, than the previous prophecies had been given. And it says that he took Paul's belt, which probably, you know, it's not like a leather belt like this. Uh, some translations call it a girdle, <laughs> which is unfortunate because in our culture we hear girdle. And we think Paul wore a girdle and we kind of, you know, take. But that's, it just means something that would gird about him. And so it's a belt. It's probably a long strip of linen cloth that, that could be wrapped around the waist several times. So it was very long. And, and, he, and he took that Paul's belt and he tied it around his feet and he tied it around his hands and, 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 he, and, he, and he gave a prophecy from the Holy Spirit that the Jews would bind or, or be the cause of binding Paul and they would hand him over to the Gentiles. Now, something happened here. Maybe, I don't know if it's because the, uh, Luke and his other companions were so familiar with Agabus' ministry that they... That they that this really hit home with them. Uh, I, I don't know if they just related it to the story, you know, of how Jesus was handed over to the Romans. I'm not sure what happened, but something happened because after this prophecy, all of a sudden, everybody that was in Philip's house, and we're told even along with Luke and all Paul's companions, the ones that were traveling with him, now everybody kept begging him not to go to Jerusalem. 
So now Paul is literally on his own in this, in this resolve to go to Jerusalem. All of his companions, not just, the, not just Philip, not just the people in the house, but now Luke and all the people traveling with him begin begging him. You know, it was, it was undoubtedly very much like what happened in the city of Tyre where the, the people, upon hearing the Spirit's very straightforward message, just expressed their feelings about it and said, oh, this is not good, Paul, you can't go. And, and their, their loud lamentation had an effect. And, and Paul felt squeezed and, and pummeled. It was, it was like, you know, the picture in my mind is a, of like a piece of laundry in the hands of the, of the washerwoman with a washboard. He's just feeling like he's being run, over the, run through the ringer. And he, he knew that their urgings sprang from deep, deep affection. And he knew that they just wanted to protect him. But Paul, he asked them, what are you trying to do weeping and breaking my heart, making me feel crushed, crushing my heart. And that phrase, crushing the heart, was a phrase that, used, that was used to mean breaking the will or, or weakening the purpose. He's saying, listen, what you're doing is you're, 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 you're weakening my resolve. I have this will to do what God called me to do. I know what awaits me, but, but you're making it harder for me. The, the, the phrase means to cause a person to go to pieces so that he can accomplish nothing. And yet, yet Paul, he had been absolutely certain at the very least since the road to Assos. You remember that? You remember when... He, he, he walked across the peninsula while, because he needed some time alone and, and while the ship went around the peninsula. At least since then, he had, he had been absolutely convinced that Jesus had called him to Jerusalem. So to get them to stop their weeping, he looked at them and he declared, he said, listen, you're worried about me being bound. He said, listen, I am, I'm not only ready to be bound, but I'm ready to die for Jesus. If that's, he's saying, listen, if, if dying for him in Jerusalem could make a revival break out, if dying for him could make his name famous, then my life, it means nothing. He says, I'll, I'll give it willingly. I'm not worried about that. You know what? Sometimes the Spirit gives people enough information to know what is likely awaiting them down the road. Like he did here with Paul. He said, this is what's coming. Didn't give him all the details. But he said, there's some tough stuff coming. But you know what? He always leaves that person with the responsibility of deciding whether or not to go anyway. Paul had the option at any time. He could say, I'm not going to do this. Reminds me a little bit uh, not nearly to the same degree, but it reminds me a little bit of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane saying, Father, if there's any other way, if there's any other way, I don't want to do this. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. See, Paul, he was settled in his mind that he had to go. He was not going to turn his back. He had made up his mind. The choice, his choice had been made before he ever got to Caesarea. The choice had been made before Agabus ever showed up and, and took his belt and tied his hands and his feet. And you know what? There's a big lesson there for us. Listen, we have got to make up our minds about 
following Jesus and, and the price that we're willing to pay for following Jesus now. Because I'm telling you this, it's, it's way more difficult, if it's possible at all, to make a decision when the heat is on. See, in this moment, if Paul had waited till now to say, yeah, I'm definitely going to Jerusalem, now at this moment in time, this would have been the most difficult point to make that choice because everybody is with weeping and with sorrow saying, no, don't go, Paul, don't go, Paul. And if he hadn't already made up his mind, he might have been swayed and he might have missed what God was calling him to do. See, we've got to make up our minds now and say, okay, Jesus, my life is nothing. I lay my life down for you now. I give you everything I have. And no matter what the cost is, I'm still going to follow you. Don't wait until the heat of the moment. You know, and, and we, I'm not just talking about persecution either. I'm also talking about temptation. Listen, if you, you've got to make up your mind before the temptation comes. Because if you, if you don't, it's going to be way harder in the moment to say no and to walk away than it is if we make up our mind now. Well, Paul knew it was God's will for him to go. And that mattered to him more than anything else, including his own life. And, and when, when the people, including his traveling companions, saw that he was steadfast, that he was not going to change his mind, they, they desisted from their entreaties and they just began to pray that the Lord's will would be done. You know, can I tell you something? I believe that, that the greatest prayer we can ever pray is for the Lord's will to be done. You know, some people, I've even heard people say, you know, say, oh, that's a lack of trust. That's a lack of faith. No, no, no. It's the ultimate trust. It's the ultimate trust because you're saying, Lord, I believe that your way, while it's not always easy, is always the best. And so we say, Lord, let your will be done. And this is where they finally got to the point. And they said, okay, well, we can't talk him out of it. Let's go with him. Let the Lord's will be done. And, and I just want to add this. You know, you say, why in the world? If the Holy Spirit wasn't telling Paul to avoid Jerusalem, why was the Holy Spirit revealing this everywhere he went to all these churches that Paul was facing the suffering. What's the point of that? Is it just to make Paul's life miserable? Why is he doing this? Listen, I'll say this. I think it was very, very important for the churches to know that it was God's will for Paul to go to Jerusalem and it was God's will for him to be bound, that he had a plan that he was accomplishing through that. Here's why. It's because... You know, there were still a lot of people that, that were called Judaizers. We, we call them that. They were still all around and they opposed the gospel that Paul preached. And, and they were still trying to demand that the Gentiles become Jews and be circumcised before they could become Christians. In fact, they were in, in effect, they were saying that the Gentile believers would lose their salvation if they didn't get circumcised and that they would never inherit the future blessings God had, had purposed for them. Now listen, had Paul gone to Jerusalem without all these warnings and let believers know what was going to happen, then the Judaizers would have been quick to jump on that and declare, this is the judgment of God. They would have said, see, did we not tell you? 
Paul's preaching is all wrong. And it would have brought great confusion to the churches. But you know what? The Holy Spirit short-circuited that. He stopped it. He nipped it in the bud. And the Holy Spirit bore witness to Paul and the gospel he, he preached and, and let the church know, hey, this is going to happen, but it's okay because I've already got a plan. I'm already at work. I've got something I'm going to do through this. Now, I want to I take a few minutes, and we're, gonna, we're almost done. I want to take a few minutes because there's an issue here that, that comes to my mind because of these prophecies uh, speaking to Paul. And, uh, and, and I want to talk a little bit about personal prophecy because it's, it's become more and more popular and more and more prevalent. And I just wanted to give you some guidelines when you're talking about somebody coming to you. Because, I mean, if you haven't had somebody come to you and say, I have a word from the Lord for you, it probably will happen. And, and so how do you handle that? What do you do? I, I'll tell you right now, when somebody says that to me, I often will say to them, well, listen, if you have a word from God, I'm, I'm ready to hear it. But I also want you to understand that it's, very, it's, not a, it, it's not something to be taken lightly. So if you're not absolutely certain this is from God, don't say it. Because I don't want to stand before God and have him say, hey, you know, you said that I said that. I didn't say that. Why did you say I said that? That was kind of hard to say. <laughs> but let me give you some guidelines. First and foremost, absolutely number one, really kind of the first and the last guideline. Any word, quote unquote, any word will be in complete and absolute agreement with the word of God. You know, there have been people who have, have abused this. I mean, and, uh, you know, you can, re, you can find stories about uh, people who represent themselves as people of God. And, and uh, I, I, I saw a story. I'm, I'm a, you know, I like true crime uh, programming. I don't know what that says about me, but I just am fascinated by all the science behind it and how they catch all these, these killers and these different things. But there was a story about a man who was pastoring a church and uh, he actually murdered his wife. Uh, but he was before that, he was having an affair with a woman in the church and he had convinced her that, it was, that God had told him that it was his will that they would be married. Well, we already know that's gone. That's wrong. Because scripture is very clear about adultery, you know, and so we know that's wrong. So if she had known the word, she could have rejected that outright and said, wait a minute, that is not a word from God. I'm out of here. You know, uh, no way I'm going to hang around this. That's first and foremost. Second thing, that word will, will usually not be new to the mind of the person being addressed but it will confirm something generally that God is already dealing with him or her about. Okay? Um, in other words, uh, well, I'll, get, I'll come back to that in a minute. Number three, the character of the person bringing the word ought to be weighed. Here, I'll give you an example here with Agabus. Agabus was deemed to be credible not because he had a claim not because he said, I have a word. Not because he said, the Holy Spirit says. His credibility was related to his record as a trust, trustworthy man of God that God had used in this gift. People knew him, and so they knew that they could take him seriously because they knew about his walk with the Lord. 
And, and I'll get, kind of getting back to that, that one I started talking about, not usually something new, but something to confirm. Remember that, that the prophecy or word is, is not to be considered controlling. Uh, uh, here's what I mean. Paul did not change his plans because of Agabus's prophecy or because of the urging of other people. You know why? It's simple. He had already heard from God on the matter. Right? He had already heard from God. Now, he received the word graciously, but he continued moving forward with what God had spoken to him already. And, and, and let me, let's put it like this. Um, you don't choose the direction of your life based upon what another person said that God said about you. You direct your steps based on what God speaks to you directly. And, and when, the, when the word of prophecy comes, what it's going to do, it will confirm what he's already been speaking with, to you about. Often you've never, you haven't even shared it with anybody, which makes it even a more powerful moment. I'll, I'll give you an example. There have been times over the years in, in youth ministry that maybe at a youth camp or around an altar that, that I would look at, it, at a kid and I would know, I'd have a word from God. I would know that this person, this young person is called into full-time ministry. Can I tell you something? Not once did I ever go to that person and say, God just told me that you're called to ministry. You know why? I know they need to hear from God first. Now, here, here's the scenario. Here, and I can tell you this, I know this even more so after years in ministry. When you're in ministry, there come seasons of ministry that are very, very difficult. And you will, when you're called into ministry, when you're in ministry, you will face times, face moments where you question the call of God. Now, when that moment comes, I don't want that young person sitting there and saying to themselves, now, did God call me? Or did Pastor Dave call me? I don't want them struggling with that. I want them looking back and saying, I remember at that altar, around that, that altar at that summer camp, I know I heard from God. And I remember when I went and talked with Pastor Dave, he said the Lord had said the same thing to him. I know I'm called of God. I'm going to keep going. You see the difference the power that's in that, it's not designed to give direction to the person. It's designed to confirm the direction God has already spoken to them. And in the light of a word, you know, we should always prayerfully consider the word as Mary did. You know, remember when the shepherds came to speak to Mary? It says in, after everything they shared, all the things they said, what the angels said, the songs that they sang, Luke 2.19 says, But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. Listen, when somebody speaks and, and, and something that, you know, has already been stirring, the, the, the first thing you do is you, you, you take that in and you prayerfully consider that. You ponder that in your heart. You say, okay, Lord, if, if this is you, if, 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 if this is a confirmation about what you've been dealing with me, you know, I guess the bottom line is this, a hasty response is very rarely required. But 
Just simply wait on God. Wait on God. He'll open the door. If he's talking, he'll open the door. It'll be the right moment. And so just, we don't have to get in a rush. You know, and so when you hear from God and another person comes to you and says, I have a word from the Lord, and it confirms what he's already been talking to you about and dealing with you about, you know, boy. Now, sometimes it's going to be an immediate action you need to take, but other times, you know, you might feel like, well, God's calling me to this ministry, and somebody confirms that, but that is, you know, his timing is as important as, as his call. And so you say, okay, Lord, now I know for sure. I'm convinced that this is you. So, Lord, would you open the door, and I'm going to wait on you to open the door. Let me say this about prophecy, too. All prophecy is in part. 1 Corinthians 13, 9, you know, we know uh, it's all about, that's the love chapter, but it talks a little bit. It says, he says, it says, now we know in part, we prophesy in part, which means that as true as the part may be, it does not give the whole picture. Right? So Agabus' word was absolutely true, and, and, and Paul was bound in, uh, uh, that he was going to be bound in Jerusalem, and he was bound in Jerusalem. He was arrested. He was in prison. However, it wasn't the full story. See what these believers that were saying, oh, don't go, Paul, don't go, Paul. What they didn't understand was that was true, but that's not the full story of what's going to take place. Because this event also opened an opportunity to eventually minister in Rome in the very palace of Caesar. It opened doors that would not have been opened otherwise. The, the suffering and imprisonment of Paul, listen, led directly to ministry to many, many people whom he would never have ever even come in contact with in any other way. You say, what are you talking about? Well, there are two Roman governors, one named Felix, one named Festus. We're going to talk about these people in coming weeks. He stood before them and presented the gospel to them. It would never have happened if he hadn't been arrested in Jerusalem. And in fact, King Agrippa and, his, and, and some of his family, they, his wife, they showed up and he presented the gospel to them. He would never have had that opportunity if he hadn't gone to, the prison, to, to Jerusalem and been in prison. There were, he, he, he was sent as a prisoner to Rome and he had the opportunity to share the gospel with soldiers and with fellow prisoners on the ship. He would never have had that opportunity had he not gone to Jerusalem and been bound. The ship, and we're going to get I love this story, this part. The ship was shipwrecked by a storm and they landed on the island of Malta and there were people there who heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. He would never have been in Malta. They would never have heard the gospel if he hadn't gone to Jerusalem and been bound. You see, Agabus's prophecy was true, but it was only in part. The whole story was that God was in control and he was going to use this to Take the gospel to people he wanted to hear. I mean, it's awesome when you see the big picture. And so I say this about personal prophecy. It's, it's a wonderful thing as long as it's kept on biblical footing. But even as wonderful as it is, it's, it, it, it's not to be used to, it's to, be, to become the way we plan or direct our lives. We need to learn to listen to the voice of the Spirit. Hear what He says to us. We're going we're gonna to close with verse 15 and 16 very, very briefly here. After this, we started on our way to Jerusalem. 
Some of the disciples from Caesarea accompanied us and brought us to the home of, of, of Manasseh, uh, where we were to stay. He was a man from Cyprus and one of the early disciples. So Paul and his companions, along with some of the disciples from the church in Caesarea, went up to Jerusalem. And they, they came from Caesarea. These brethren that, from that area, they knew a believer named Manasseh, who, like Barnabas, was from Cyprus. And we're told he was one of the early disciples. You know what that means? Uh, that phrase, scholars say what that means is that he was one of the original 120 in the upper room on the day of Pentecost. That's pretty awesome. And like Barnabas, he also, because he was from Cyprus, he would be sympathetic to Paul's ministry and he would not object to having Gentiles uh, in his home. But here's the thing about this, those two little verses. They have just been given this, this prophecy. You're going to be arrested. You're going to be bound. You're going to be turned over to the Gentiles. They don't know what that means. They don't know if that means death. They don't know what that means. They knew, at least in part, what awaited them in Jerusalem. Still, they went. Still, they went. They, listen... They were faithful. And we use that word. You know what faithful means? Full of faith. Faithful. Full of faith. That's what, that was, that's what makes you, we use the word to think in terms of steadfastness. But what makes you steadfast? It's because you're full of faith. That's what keeps you going forward. That's what keeps you moving in the right direction because that's ultimately, that's the essence of what it means to be faithful. It means to be so full of faith that you keep going. It means you, that you have so much faith that even if you don't know where you're going, even if you don't know the, the end result, even if you know, don't know what's really going to happen, if you, even if you don't know your ultimate fate, you still have enough faith that you keep moving forward. Therefore, you are faithful. You know what? There are times when, in, when life, actually the reality is, this is the truth, all the time in life, we are really not sure what's going to happen next. We, we, think, we, we think we know. Uh, how many of you have ever had, you know, you've been going through a normal day and next thing you know, a curveball comes and you, something happened you never saw coming. I mean, it happens all the time. You know, we, 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 we live in this illusion of control. We think that we're controlling our environment. We're in control of the situation. We are not. We're just along for the ride. The, the, the wave is going and we're on the surfboard and we don't really know where it's going. We don't know what's going to happen. And, and there, there are many times in life where we are become so aware of, of, the, uh, of the unsteadiness of, of the, the inability to control the future that we just don't know what's going to happen next. But you know what? Because we are full of faith, because we are faithful people of God, we keep moving forward and we say, I don't, doesn't matter what happens. I don't need to know what's coming tomorrow. I'm going to keep walking with Jesus. I'm going to keep moving forward. I'm going to keep fulfilling the ministry he's called me to. I'm going to be the person he wants me to be. I'm going to keep going. I'm going to be faithful. I'm going to be a person that's full of faith. I'm not going to quit. I'm going to keep going regardless. I lay my life on the line. Amen? That's what it means. That's what I want to be. I want to be a faithful man of God. Anybody here with me? You want to be faithful? 
Amen. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you, Lord, for what you did in Paul's life.